in our study of the seven letters. Y'all, excuse me, I'm drinking a lot tonight. I just have cotton mouth. I don't know why. Um, we've got two churches left, Laodicea and Philadelphia. But because I wasn't sure how long the business meeting would go, we're actually going to diverge from that. And especially as we look at the next verse, if you just look there, the next passage, it's very lengthy. There's a lot there, so I want to punt, and we'll look at that next week. And so this week, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. So we'll diverge from our study of the book of Revelation and go to the book of Hebrews. Not far from the book of Revelation. New Testament, just a few books over. Hebrews chapter 1. And if anyone asks you what we studied um, on Wednesday night, you can sort of use the Sunday school answer and you can say Jesus. Because that's, that's exactly what we're studying tonight. Uh, the Sunday school answer. So uh, let's read beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read the first three verses or so. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So I'm going to skip verse 1. I read it just because we need the context there. But I really want us to focus on verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. And that very first phrase as we look at verse 2 is this. By his son. It is by his son that this came to be. So we talked recently about the fact that we were dealing here with the eternal son the eternal Son of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What, what do we call this when we're talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, the Godhead? The Trinity, right? Now, does the word Trinity, does that show up in the Bible? No, that's weird. Well, why, why, do we use, why do we use the word then? It's not in the Bible. It means three, right? It means sort of, yeah, three, you could have a... A unity, which would be one, right? Which is where you get Unitarians. They deny the Trinity. They, they have one. Um, Trinity would be three, the three, right? Why, why do we want to be biblical, don't we? Why don't we use it if it's, if it's not in the Bible? Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a hard question, but it's actually really not. We do this a lot. We, I mean, on one hand, we have differences of language, and we have generations of development and so on and so forth. But the reason that the word Trinity was developed, which it was developed very, very early. This was not something I, we made up 300 years ago. It's, you know, a couple thousand years old almost. About 1,800 years old is when it was first coined. Um, it, it is the best way that we have and the best way that the church had to describe uh, the full picture that the Bible gives us about God. We, we see that God is one, and that is crystal clear in the Bible. There is one God. Um, that, that, that is, there's, without any doubt, that is clear in the mind of all of the biblical authors. And yet, at the same time, God is three. Now, he's not one and three in the same ways. There's, there's a sense in which he is one, and there's a sense in which he is three. And so as we look at all these pictures of the Bible, the fact that we have the Spirit, and we have the Son, and we have the Father, and yet they are one God, they are Yahweh, the word Trinity was developed to help us make sense and explain uh, ultimately what we see in the Bible. And almost always, uh, I could probably think of a couple examples of, of this happening otherwise, but almost always the reason that sort of big fancy words like this are developed is to speak against error. And so someone would rise up within the church and say, no, 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 there, there is no Trinity, God is only one. 
And then people would work together how to explain this. And so vocabulary very often, as I said, I mean, 99% of the time is developed in this way to ultimately answer error and say, this is what the scriptures clearly teach and ultimately reject that which is anti-biblical. And so it's good for us to, to remember that. Any thoughts on that before we move on? It's a good foundation for us as we think about this. So look in there at verse 2 again. The father appointed the son heir of all things. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things. Now thinking about what we just said about the Trinity. All three eternal, all three God, all three sharing of the same nature. If Jesus is the eternal son, what does it mean that the father made him heir? Isn't he already heir of everything? What does that mean? Any thoughts? Any, any guesses? Again, these questions sound like, oh, I don't know, they're so hard. The, the answers are actually pretty simple. But, but it's something that maybe you've never thought of. This, this sort of language is often used in the New Testament. In fact, we'll see it in the book of Revelation if we were to continue through. You'll see this language of, of him being given the kingdom and, and becoming heir of all things. Well, what this does, it describes the Son in his incarnate state as Jesus, the Messiah, God the Son, come to earth. As the eternal Son of God, of course all things are his. He owns all things. Everything is already his. Nothing has to be given to him. And yet in his humanity, he ultimately is given these as Jesus, the man. So there's a really profound thing that we see here. Um, and ultimately, we're going to talk more about this. And if we had a lot more time, we could talk more about the way in which Jesus, we have to remember, fully God and yet fully man. He was born. Bob, you have a thought on that? Everything, yeah. If you were second born, you got nothing. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's probably some ways in which we can draw from that ancient culture. And that was really true everywhere in the ancient world, by the way. If you're a second or third son, daughter, certainly if you're a daughter, you're, you're on your own. Now, there was a paternalistic, okay, you'll care for them, but you might care for them as they live over at the edge of the property somewhere. Um, but, but really, the, the bigger idea here is um, the idea of Messiah. These things that were prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, that one would come. By the way, what does Messiah mean? What does that word mean? Say it? Not quite. David is even called the Messiah once. Anointed one. The Messiah is the anointed one. Now, David was anointed one, sort of small a. But there is this picture of a coming Messiah, a coming anointed one from God that would ultimately become sort of this victor, the one who would take up God's kingdom, who would be David's forever king, ruling in the throne of David. And so, so much of this is wrapped up in that idea of Messiah and the expectation of that and God fulfilling what he had promised to do. So the name of this book is Hebrews. It gives you a sense of who's reading this. They were all Jews. So they understood this language. We, we don't get it because culturally we're separated from it. But they understood this language. That This is speaking of um, the uh, Old Testament Messiah, the one who would take up the mantle of God's kingdom, the heir of all things. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? It's a really, really profound idea for us. So you begin seeing in this how important it is to read our Old Testament, to see how those things are pointing forward. Uh, I, I really, just, just as a recommendation, I, 
I would suggest to you, now maybe you have a great Bible reading plan, and if, and if you do, that's great. But, but I would encourage you, maybe, especially if you're sort of used to just kind of doing your own thing, you know, read from the Old Testament and the New. You know, there, it, it's easier to read the New Testament sometimes. I, I know, I get it. But, but in the Old Testament, so much that we read in the New only makes sense in light of the Old Testament. So it is so important for us to read the historical books of the Old Testament, to read the law, to read the prophets, and so on. Yeah, Lee. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's a great question. Uh, it was a. It was a, a. Sort of think about like an inauguration as like a president or someone. Sort of to be anointed is sort of inaugurated into a line of service, and so David is anointed king. Remember by Samuel the prophet. So in other words, and actually it's even delayed. He doesn't become king right away, but it's saying you will become king. You are now God's chosen man. And so to be anointed is to be chosen effectively. And really probably there might even be a semantic room in there to translate it as chosen, the, the chosen one, the anointed one. So that's a great question. And so um, the prophets would, would often anoint kings and things like that, or prophets would be anointed. It was to be set aside for service. Yeah, like we would, we would do an ordination service for a pastor to set him aside, someone to serve the Lord in that way. It's a, it's a recognition of, of their special service. And so when we think about Jesus, the anointed one, it takes these earthly ideas of king and, and, and sort of even, you know, prophet and so on. And ultimately, it's God's anointed one for the sacred mission that everything else was working towards. Yeah, great question, Lee. Other, other questions or thoughts on that? So if there's any doubt about the son's ownership of all things, just look at this next phrase, through whom he created the world. Have you ever thought about this? That the son was the agent of creation. So this world is his handiwork. So as you look at the Grand Canyon, as you look at the Northern Lights, as you look at Mount Pisgah, as you look at the wonders of this world, Remember that it is, it is the sun, the eternal sun, that ultimately was the agent of creation. When you look at the book of Genesis, you see the Father ultimately speaking. You see the Spirit hovering over the waters. There's two. Here we see a third, that ultimately the sun is the agent of creation. So really powerful picture here of understanding who we are talking about. When we look at Jesus the man, we must see his humanity. It is absolutely essential. We, if we lose his humanity, we lose his, his place as a Savior. We lose his messiahship, the anointed one. And yet we must not miss that he is ultimately, and this is the author of Hebrews speaking about this, that it is he who is the agent of creation. He is the eternal one. Do you, think about this, this is a question, you don't need to respond, obviously. But I mean, do you give due weight to that when you pray? When you think about that. We, we, we recognize the privilege, especially as Baptists, as Protestants, we recognize the privilege that we have immediate access to God, and we do. We absolutely do. Priesthood of the believer, key biblical idea. We, we recognize that we are friends of God. That language is used in the New Testament, and we, we, we cherish that. But ultimately, remember, he is the creator, God. When we call out to Jesus, when we pray, Father, Son, or Spirit, but certainly here thinking in this context, I just want us to think about that, that this Jesus that we think of is the creator of all things. Um, I'm often struck by, I think, um, the tendency to away from this, um, when we see Jesus depicted sometimes, like you see him on the side of the road and, you know, 
you know, I remember driving through Arkansas one time. You see Jesus, and he's crying, and you know, it's got the Bible verse about, you know, Jesus is calling out to you and so on. And, or we'll see, um, you know, a picture of, you know, Jesus on the back of a truck, you know, with his, with his hands or whatever it is. And, and on one hand, you know, of course, we have no clue what Jesus looked like in terms of his immediate face. He was a Jewish man. He would have looked Jewish. But there's a sense in which sometimes it depicts Jesus in, in a sort of a strange way, I think, that we can miss the fact that, yes, he was human, and yet he was also God, a very God. Any thoughts on that before we go on to verse 3? So not only is he creator, but he's the sustainer. Look there at the, I think it's the last part of verse 3, right? Yeah, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't have time to go in to impact, unpack the one about the word, but let's just think about the idea that he's upholding the universe. The word, I think, is an important. Think back to Genesis. God spoke and so on. But, but if, if God ceased to exist, church, you all think about this. Now, it's, this is hypothetical. Obviously, it's impossible. But if God somehow ceased to exist, this universe would crumble. It is not a clock that God made and sort of wind, wind up and just kind of walked away, and now he's just kind of watching it. Far from it. And this is not just a New Testament idea. This is an Old Testament idea. This is a biblical idea that God is constantly uh, upholding his creation. Planet Earth, the galaxy, the sun, all the things that exist, even that language of all things that exist. You realize God is not a thing? He's not. He's not a thing. Things are created. God is uncreated. I trick my daughter with this all the time. She, she loves it, you know. There's all these ways you, you don't even know how to talk about God and creation sometimes. God is not a thing. And yet all those things that exist, all matter, ultimately is being sustained by God. What, what do we call that? There's a word that we use, again, theologically, thinking of a big word, to refer to, to God's care over his creation. What is it? Starts with a P. Providence. We speak of God's providence. Now, often we speak about it in our lives, which is true. We can speak about, I'll often say something, oh, by God's providence, uh, I connected with a church called uh, such and such, and ultimately I'm here, right? So Starnes Cove Baptist Church, and God's providence brought me here. Um, but, 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 and certainly that's true in the little things of our lives, but it's by God's providence that there's a rainbow, or that ultimately our river is flowing, or that the sun is shining, all these things. It's really sad uh, that as Christians, in some ways we can sort of imbibe a naturalistic worldview. Again, that we kind of assume that just, if, if anything, God kind of made it and then set back and is just kind of watching it. Um, but that, and that's the way that Darwinists view things, evolutionists. They think everything is just its own natural process. We should know better than that. But God is ultimately sustaining all things, always. Any thoughts on that? It's a profound idea. All things ultimately work according to his plan. That gives a sense of confidence, right? So even in the chaos of, of a hurricane or the chaos of wildfires or the chaos um, you know, of a freak snowstorm, you know, whatever it is, ultimately we know that God has not completely walked away from his creation. He continues to sustain it. And he will do so, he says, until he returns ultimately to recreate it. It's the new heavens and the new earth. The last thing is in verse 3 there, it speaks of the Son sharing in God's glory, sharing in his same nature. Uh, right there at the beginning, he is the radiance, it's just this language, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. These two things alone, I mean, we could spend the whole night talking about it. I mean, this declares the Son's full deity 
even in the incarnate state, it's not as if Jesus be, took on flesh, that the God the Son took on flesh, became the man, and sort of set his deity aside, and then later kind of picked it up. No, no, no. Now, there are times where he does not exercise his deity. Now, the adversary tries to tempt him. Turn those stones into bread. Jump off of here and so on. Call down the angels. You know, ultimately, there, there are times where he's tempted. Um, and he doesn't use it, ultimately, to make things easier for him. But we see him raising the dead. We see him feeding thousands of people with a handful of food. We see him calming the waters on the ocean. He is absolutely always fully God and fully man, even throughout uh, his time on earth as, as Jesus, the man, and into his glorification. We could talk more about that um, some other time, perhaps. And so he is every bit God as he is man. These are very important ideas for us to think about. So I want to at least introduce them, and God willing, we'll explore these with a little more depth, just really by looking at biblical passages about them as we go through and seeing how we understand not only this passage or that passage, but ultimately how the Bible fits together. Any, any concluding thoughts on this? Before we close, I'll ask one more question then. What does it mean, what are we speaking about when we speak about God's nature? What does that mean? We might come back to this another time. Mm -hmm. If Jesus shares, because this is speaking about the Son, if God the Son shares the nature of the Father, what does that mean? When we think about the divine nature, there is only Father, Son, and Spirit that share that nature. Nothing else in all of creation shares it, and nothing ever could. Because again, God is uncreated. That's part, actually, of his nature. As we think about omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, all those things that are unique to God, no other being, no other creature could ever have these sort of things. It's saying that everything that makes the Father God, the Son also has. And everything that the Father has, the Spirit also has. Even if there is an order within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so if the Father is omnipresent, so is the Spirit. And if the Son is uh, omni, omnipotent, then so are the other members and so on. And so how do we know that Jesus is God? Well, he shares the same nature as the Father. And so he has godness in, in likeness. Uh, and so it's a really important thing, even as we think about apologetically. People would say, how do you know that Jesus was God? How do you know? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Did the Bible ever say? Yeah, a lot. I did a lot, by the way. So... Okay, any final closing thoughts? Joy? Yeah. So you're opening up a big can of worms, but I'll, I'll, say, I'll say it in 30 seconds or 20 seconds. So, so the, no, that's good. I mean, the fact is, is have you ever, um, so... I mean, my whole life, and I've not been around that long, but I, I grew up in the 1980s in an evangelical household, and so you heard all the time, but we're in the last days. We're in the last days now. Boy, all this stuff going on in the Middle East and so on, I heard that all the time, and so I just said, oh, man, we're in the last days. And we are. We are in the last days. But we've been in the last days since the time of the New Testament. And so it's important for us to realize now maybe we're in the last part of the last days. Maybe we're at the very end of this, this sort of season of world history, this period, this uh, dispensation of world history, but the fact is, is we are in the last days, and that's always clear in the minds of the apostles as they're writing, always. That's why we are sojourners and strangers in this world. That's why it's, it's uh, you know, there's always the urgency to repent, because Christ may come at any time, like a thief in the night, and so on. And so, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, of course, we could unpack each and every little phrase in verse 1 as well, I mean, in this book to the prophets, and so on. And so, yeah.
good. Anything else? Let's pray and close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this brief time together um, with these brothers and sisters. I pray you'd bless them. I pray, God, that we would worship you, Son, Eternal, Jesus, our Lord, Savior, Messiah, that we would honor you with our thoughts, that we would follow after you as disciples, Lord, that we'd be faithful ultimately and that we would conquer until the end when you return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.